You're listening to the Bible Nerd Podcast, a weekly show where we're exploring the world of the Bible, helping you fall more in love with Jesus, and building a thoughtful defense for the Christian worldview. I'm your host, Steve Schramm. Welcome to the show. We're getting a little philosophical this week. We're going to talk about probably one of the most useful and most important philosophical arguments that there is. And anybody can use this. In fact, as you're going to see through some uh, interesting examples, most people are using this kind of argument on a regular basis and they don't even realize it. So if you can start using this argument, the reductio ad absurdum, which is what we're talking about today, if you can start using it intentionally in very strategic situations, then you can get a lot of mileage out of it. And you will be surprised how often this is useful. What may be most surprising to you is how often this is useful against very, very smart people. Now, why do I say that? Well, the fact of the matter is that there is a difference between smart people and people who can think well. Now, yeah, there's going to be those correlations, right? A lot of times people who are smart can think well and people who can think well are smart. Um, But they don't always go hand and hand. You can be a very smart person who is not a very articulate thinker. And those types are going to be especially susceptible to an argument like this one. So let's describe it a little bit. We'll get into this uh, topic today. And maybe you can leave uh, or, um, you know, you, you don't leave listening to a podcast, right? Uh, but but you'll t- come away from this podcast with a, a better understanding of this argument and a little bit on how to think better and certainly how you can use this to uh, advance the cause of the gospel. Now, the Latin name given to the argument, again, the reductio ad absurdum, just simply seeks to accurately describe it. So it means to reduce to absurdity. Reductio ad absurdum means to reduce to absurdity. Now, here's the point, and I think it's pretty easy to grasp. An argument that is self-refuting is one that can be reduced to absurdity. Now, I'm gonna, uh, not going to spend much time here, but it is worth pointing out that this argument is a favorite among presuppositional apologists because the point uh, of the presuppositionalist is that non-Christian worldviews all reduce to absurdity. So it, it's tempting to spend some time here, but I'm going to refrain from that. Uh, but I will circle back to that point and make a, a more, more practical application to that end here in a few moments. So what's an example of an argument like this, of an argument that reduces to absurdity? Well, consider the following statement, and surely you've heard something like this. All knowledge is derived from the use of the five senses. Let me read that again. All knowledge is derived from the use of the five senses. Can you spot any problems with that if you take a moment just to think through it? What's the problem? The problem is that this statement makes a knowledge claim, right? It claims to be true. It makes a knowledge claim, which was not derived from the five senses, 
right? So it's a knowledge claim that says that all knowledge is derived from the use of the five senses, but that claim was not derived from the use of five senses. Instead, the claim is a philosophical one that reduces to absurdity because it can't sustain its own burden. It, 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 it collapses, in other words, under its own weight. So because one could not know via the five senses that all knowledge derives from them, again, the claim is self-refuting, and therefore it is absurd. And this kind of thinking, this um, sort of argument, is the um, essence of the reductio ad absurdum. And you probably just don't realize how this thinking has crept into everyday use, right? Consider another example. Consider the wayward child who wishes to follow his friends in a risky endeavor despite knowing the potential consequences. He says something like this, right? But everybody will be there. Everybody will be there. Mom and dad, though, uh, know better, right? In their wisdom, uh, they reply to him, oh yeah, well, if everybody jumped off of a bridge, would you do that too? You know, the point there is that if you follow the child's thinking to its logical conclusion, it creates an absurd situation, right? Because that's not a good reason to do everything. You don't just do everything because the crowd is, is doing it. And uh, so while there is even a a kind of a moral uh, point that you could make with things like that. Essentially, it's a reductio ad absurdum. It reduces to uh, absurdity because you wouldn't follow that principle when it comes to something like jumping off of a bridge. That's not a good reason to want to do something. And um, so that's just a, an example in everyday kind of uh, situations where this can happen. We see it often actually in new atheist arguments as well. Here's uh, what they say. This is similar to the, to the uh, kind of empiricists claim about how all knowledge is derived from the five senses. This would be the, um, the, the claim of the person who subscribes to scientism, something like this. Only the hard sciences provide truth. Only the hard sciences provide truth. Really, though, really, is that true? Is it, is it true that only the hard sciences provide truth? Because if so, then that claim is false. Because nobody can apprehend that truth by using the hard sciences. Instead, that is a claim of philosophy. It's a philosophical claim that only the hard sciences provide truth. But if you're claiming that that claim is true, then it must be false because you didn't arrive at it by using those uh, methods. So you see the nature of this. This is how the reductio ad absurdum works. Now, maybe the most common, potentially even the most recognizable of this is the postmodernist claim that there just is no truth. Right? You've heard this. There is no truth. All truth is relative. There is no absolute truth. But if it's true that there is no truth, then it's also true that there is truth, right? Because that one thing would at least be true. But that means that there is something that is both true and not true, and that is a direct, glaring, logical contradiction. We can't have that. that that's, not, uh, that's not sound. So this is the essence. This is what's going on here. It can be a very, very, very powerful tactic to expose bad 
thinking, especially given the surprising number of arguments which uh, seek to set themselves up against the knowledge of God that actually fall into this trap. Now, speaking of tactics, let's take a kind of excursus, if you will, uh, although it is germane to the point, of course, and talk about Greg Kokel's uh, tactics book. This is one of my favorite books uh, in terms of the practical application of Christian apologetics. I've read it two or three times now, and uh, it just it doesn't get any better. It really doesn't. Uh, Greg bridges the gaps. He is great at understanding uh, people and great at helping you to communicate with different kinds of people based on certain claims that they make and demeanors that they have. I mean, it's really, really a great uh, book. And of course, he recently updated it just within the last year or two, uh, the 10th anniversary uh, edition of Tactics. And I've read that and I highly, highly, highly encourage you to uh, go check it out. So um, Cokewell calls this actually the taking the roof off tactic in his book. And I'm going to read his illustration here to you. Quote, if you were visiting Los Angeles and wanted to go to Santa Barbara up the coast, someone might draw a map to guide you to your destination. If, however, you follow the instructions very carefully and took the highway they suggested but found yourself in Riverside on your way to the desert, you would know something was wrong with the route you were given. In a similar fashion, worldviews are like maps. They are someone's idea of what the world is like. The individual ideas making up a worldview are like highways leading to a different destination. If you use the map but arrive at a strange destination, either part of the map is inaccurate, the part about the highway you were driving on, or the map itself is the wrong one for the region. I realize that this last option is not likely when you're talking about real maps. I doubt you would try to find your way around New York using a map of Chicago, but this kind of thing happens all the time with worldviews. Sometimes the roads are wrong on otherwise good worldview maps. At other times, worldview maps are inadequate for the actual terrain. Close quote. So the point he's making here is that Many people make this simple mistake, the reductio ad absurdum, right, where you can go in and you could reduce it to absurdity at the worldview level. And as Coco is going to demonstrate, as we're going to read a little bit further on from him here in a moment, um, this can lead to very undesirable consequences. So he goes on to explain a scenario here in which uh, Mother Teresa attempted to lobby for the forgiveness of a criminal. And this particular example demonstrates just how important this concept is. It can have uh, disastrous consequences in our thinking in very real, impactful ways. Here's Coco. Quote, Mother uh, Teresa once appealed to the governor of California to stay the execution of a vicious double murderer. She reasoned that since Jesus would forgive, the governor should forgive. Though the intentions were good, the argument itself proves too much, as our tactics demonstrates. When applied consistently, this view becomes a reason to forgo any punishment for any crime because one could always argue Jesus would forgive. Emptying every prison does not seem to be what Jesus would advise, 
since great evil would result. Capital punishment might be faulted on other grounds, but not on this one. Here is the analysis. Claim. If Jesus would forgive uh, capital criminals, then it is wrong to execute them, taking the roof off. On this reasoning, it would be wrong for government to punish any criminal, because one could always say, Jesus would forgive. This seems absurd, especially when Scripture states that the purpose of government is to punish evildoers, not forgive them. Therefore, even though Jesus might forgive murderers, that does not mean it's wrong for the government to punish them. Close quote. So you see how quickly this can lead to a disastrous consequence um, when it comes to you know social issues. I, I mean, if this logic were to hold up, you know, you could find yourself releasing dozens and hundreds and thousands of criminals on the same basis, or at least you would find yourself morally obligated to do so, which means that you're then compromising your moral values if you do not. So you see um, how important this can be. And a final example I'm going to give here from Greg. It becomes clear that uh, these arguments can literally lead to the difference in the mentality between life and death. Here's what we mean. Quote, virtually every argument in favor of abortion could equally justify killing newborns if pressed to its logical conclusion. If it's acceptable to take the life of an innocent human being on one side of the birth canal, why forbid it on the other side? A seven-inch journey cannot miraculously transform a non-human tissue mass into a valuable human being. When someone justifies abortion by saying women have the right to choose, use a version of taking the roof off called trotting out the toddler. Ask if a woman should have the right to kill her one-year-old child for the same reason. Since both an unborn child and a one-year-old are human beings, the same moral rule should apply to each. The logic of choice, privacy, and personal bodily rights endangers newborns, not just the unborn. At the University of New Mexico, a student said we should abort children to save them from future child abuse. Former Stand to Reason speaker Steve Wagner trotted out the toddler in response. Should we also kill two-year-olds to save them from future child abuse? I hadn't thought about that, the student said. And that's the point. People don't think about the logical implications of their ideas. It's our job to help them see where their ideas logically take them. Close quote. So, um, as you can see, Coco really goes out of his way to provide some helpful examples that really show the consequences for this argument. So, if I may just plug uh, his book, Tactics, again, it's a great one to learn how to deal not only with this argument, but a lot of other uh, logical contradictions, especially informal logical contradictions uh, that you are going to come across here. Now, let me throw a little bit of a monkey wrench in things at this point, and uh, to, to just make the point that not everything uh, that sounds contradictory actually is. In other words, when you when you really get off on a on a right foot on a good um, on, on a good footing with this argument and you start to understand it, you are going to come across things that um, well, let me just say it this way. It'll be easier for you to notice contradictions in thinking, contradictions in 
in logic. And of course, kind of the first, you know, and most important rule of logic is uh, the law of non-contradiction. Uh, well, probably the first would be the law of identity. But anyway, the law of non-contradiction is just as important because anything that is logically contradictory can't be true. You can't have um, P and not P at the same time. Um, those are logically contradictory ideas. And so you're going to see these things. And you might be tempted to get carried away a little bit, okay? So, um, for example, uh, in a few moments, we're going to examine some um, biblical examples of the reductio ad absurdum. And some of these are employed by Jesus himself. However, however, and this is important, Jesus also taught paradoxical truths. Paradoxical truths. So what's a paradox? Well, a paradox is often nothing but a surface level contradiction. In other words, um, an apparent contradiction might be another good way to say it. Um, that is not logically fallacious when it's examined closely. And a lot of Proverbs in the Bible are like this as well. They are designed, actually, to create tension in your thinking for the purpose of making you dig deeper and to think harder. So uh, creating a, a problem for thought is not the same as there being a problem for a particular thought, right? It's, it, it's okay to um, hold truths in paradoxical tension because they do not have strict logical um, violation of each other, okay? They, they do not strictly contradict one another. So, for example, when Jesus says, he who is first shall be last, he's saying something that is, um, in a sense, broadly, logically contradictory, right? In, in a very undefined, kind of loosely defined especially sense, if someone is first, he cannot be last. If someone is first, he cannot be last, okay? So what it comes down to then is in what sense, in what sense are these phrases being employed? So Jesus's point was that someone who takes all for himself now, right, a selfish person, will be placing themselves at the end of the line later because, um, you know, they have their reward and are therefore last in God's kingdom. But someone who makes little of himself now for the good of others or a selfless person will have a greater reward and will therefore be first in God's kingdom. So it's all about a, a matter of sense. This is another place where the, uh, you know, the presuppositionalist uh, loves to quote the verses, um, Proverbs, uh, is it, I can never remember, is it 24, 5, and 6, or 26, 4, and 5? I can never remember, but anyway, um, it, it's where it says basically, um, answer the fool according to his, um, or don't answer the fool according to his folly, um, lest you be like him. But then the very next verse says, answer the fool according to his folly, um, lest he be wise in his own conceit. And of course, the point there is that those things are not contradictory because they're meant in different senses. It's in the way that you answer and the intent with which you answer that determines that. So it's not a contradictory idea. I think um, what made uh, me think of this point while I was writing this and um, 
preparing this was actually the song I was listening to uh, when I was finishing up that section that we just got through. And uh, the song was called Beautiful, Terrible Cross by Sila. Beautiful, Terrible Cross. And the song, it's of course named this way intentionally, right? Because on the surface, we don't normally think of beautiful things as being terrible. In our minds, just without thinking about it any deeper, these are logically contradictory ideas. How can something that is terrible be beautiful? Now, every line uh, of this song, frankly, is just incredible. I highly uh, recommend you go listen to it. But this one in particular, I think, serves to make the point. It says this, Oh, we gained the riches of heaven, Jesus. You paid the horrible cost. We stand forgiven and praise you for the beautiful, terrible cross. So in other words here, the cross is beautiful because of what we gained, but it's terrible because of what he had to give. So it's beautiful because of what we gained, but it's terrible because of what he had to give. So the surprise that is you know, brought about by the title requires us to think deeper about it. It creates a sort of tension in our minds that we're not going to be able to let it go until we understand what the writer means. We just have to know what the writer means. And I think in this way, even the title of a song has the potential to say more than what uh, some writers can say in an entire song. The idea itself is beautiful, and it relies on these uh, sort of paradoxical truths. So things can be paradoxically true without being strictly logically contradictory. So you have to watch out for that. Not everything needs to be reduced to absurdity, but uh, again, it still is going to apply, I would say, in most uh, cases. Um, but again, paradoxes are are useful and should not be considered contradictory. Now, uh, you know, the, the problem with uh, being a careful thinker is, is you can always catch yourself at certain points. And so it's, I, I kind of feel at this point that I have to caveat the caveat, uh, because even this, um, the idea of a paradox, has a liability. So for example, right, some people acknowledge that humans have free will and that God is sovereign. But, um, but that this happens in sort of a paradoxical way that's known to God, but not to us. So one writer said, uh, you'll remember this, uh, you probably heard this somewhere from somebody, uh, the door into heaven says, whosoever will. But when it's closed, the other side reads, chosen before the foundation of the world. However, you know, it's arguable whether this is a paradox or a contradiction. I know some who will say it's a paradox, and I know others who will say it's a contradiction. And I'm not going to step into the debate right here, but many do feel that it's a uh, contradiction, and therefore they would seek to provide a solution grounded in knowable reality, which attempts to resolve the tension. So what's my point? Well, just this. Um, it may be a paradox for the person who can resolve the tension, but they would want to argue that it is um, contradictory for those who cannot resolve the tension via their theology. So um, you really have to think through these things. It's arguable whether some things really are paradoxes or they're contradictory. 
you know, these are not always very obvious. And I think the case of free will versus sovereignty is one of those where um, I can see the arguments on both sides. And uh, so uh, I'm not going to get into that debate uh, right here. Sorry to disappoint. All right. So uh, let's give some biblical examples here of uh, the reductio being employed. Jesus, uh, I think, was quite the philosopher. Uh Many don't have a robust view of the person of Christ and, and who he was and what he did and what uh, you know what his actions were as recorded in the Gospels. And he really was quite the philosopher. He often stopped the Pharisaical religious leaders in their tracks um, just by running reductio ad absurdum arguments on them. And consider this scene from Matthew 12, uh, verses 9 to 13. So Jesus had been in an altercation uh, explained um, in the beginning parts of the chapter from verse, uh, verses 1 to 8 with the Pharisees. And in that part of the conversation, he also used a reductio ad absurdum, but it, it's a harder one to spot. So I'm going to go ahead and bring this one out to you because I think it's easier. So again, Matthew 12, uh, 9 to 13. And I should have mentioned earlier, but if you're not following along with the blog post that accompanies this episode, you can find all the Bible verses, any other important links, all of my footnotes, references, and things of that nature are here uh, on the website. And you can just go to stevetram.com and you'll see this episode right there on uh, the homepage if you're listening in the... in um, you know, very recently, uh, shortly after the podcast posted. If you're listening well on into the future, just uh, search for probably the word art. Even if you search on the website, you would be able to find it. But anyway, you can go back there and follow along. So I'm going to read Matthew 12, 9 through 13. And when he was departed thence, he went into their synagogue. And behold, there was a man which had his hand withered. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him. And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that have one sheep, and it fall into a pit on the Sabbath day? Will he not lay hold onto it and lift it out? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole, like as the other. So, again, here, Jesus is taking the Pharisees to task. And how he's doing this is by pointing out that their view is absolutely absurd. That's really what he's doing here. Um, on what grounds was Jesus going to heal on the Sabbath? Right? This would apparently be unlawful. And yet, it's Jesus' law right? It's God's law. Um, Jesus knew, and so did they, that they would have no issue rescuing one of their own sheep if it had fallen into the pit on the Sabbath. So why are we not going to rescue a man? We would rescue a sheep. If, and if you would do that, on what grounds would you not rescue a man? And, you know, the point is that Jesus was making, well, the Pharisees' argument is just absurd, absurd. The Apostle Paul is another one who was a, a very, very sound uh, thinker, and uh, I love to read the Apostle Paul. I think he is extremely um, uh, well-versed in his craft here. He was a great philosopher as well, as he demonstrated on numerous 
examples. He was trained, actually, in the halls of Judaism's finest by a, a well-respected thinker named uh, Gamaliel, and he really brought a wealth of knowledge into his discussions with the Grecians, and he could have very, very intelligent conversations. One of his most famous encounters was from the uh, Areopagus in Acts 17, uh, Paul there on Mars Hill. Here's what he says. I'm going to read uh, to you from verses 22 to 31. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth all life and breath and all things, and hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, and that he hath raised him from the dead. All right, now, um, Paul makes a very calculated move here, and it, it appears very subtle to us, but to them, to his audience, it would have um, immediately made them to feel the force of the point that he was making. So in verse number 28, he's actually quoting Greek uh, poets and thinkers, Epimenides and Aratus. Okay, These are, again, writers and philosophers who wrote these words about Zeus, not about Yahweh, right? Um, in We are his offspring. Um, we live and move and have our being. These ideas, these are things that um, the Greeks claimed, uh, you know, mostly about Zeus. Uh, certainly not about the God of the Hebrews. And so what's Paul's point? Well, um, throughout this entire pericope, he's essentially making the point that the Grecians have a contradictory worldview because they're borrowing from the God of the Bible. They're borrowing. And this is, again, I said I would circle back to the presuppositionalist thinking. This is, again, where they're going to use this at the worldview level um, and try to reduce other views to absurdity because the fact of the matter is that uh, if you believe these things, if you believe that in him we live and move and have our being, then what you don't believe in is 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 Zeus. What you actually believe in is the God of the Bible. You actually believe in Yahweh. You're borrowing from him and having to attribute to that, that to somebody else. Um, they worship man-made idols as if they have the power and attributes of Yahweh. And that is just not um, 
going to do. So Paul, what does he do? He goes and declares the unknown God to them. And in fact, they've erected an altar for him. They were so um, spiritual, right, that they erected an altar to the unknown God just in case they missed one. And Paul comes along and says, no, you did miss one. You did miss one. And I am going to declare him unto you. So his point is very much in line with his thinking from Romans 1, 19 and 20, right? They worship this uh, so-called unknown God in ignorance. Yahweh is who they ought to worship, especially that he gave all men assurance of his identity by raising from the dead. And again, that's verse 31. So in, in this one swift move, Paul has reduced their entire worldview to absurdity by demonstrating that they direct worship toward a God who does not have the attributes required to produce the goods they worship him for. It's completely logically inept. So, as you can see, we we should not uh, dismiss carefully thinking about these things uh, just because they appear to be abstract. I mean, most people don't wake up thinking about logical contradictions. But again, remember that Jesus and Paul, Jesus and Paul used them in the public square with the philosophers and religious leaders of their day. And why in the world should we uh, think that we shouldn't do the very same thing? I mean, we face the very same things today. Um, Philosophers and scientists and religious leaders, very smart people, who show up with their ideas, bad as they may be, in the public square. So we have a, uh, I would say, an obligation, a moral duty, really, to dive in there and to be able to think about these things. Because again, even... Even the Lord Jesus Christ and even the Apostle Paul were doing this thousands of years ago um, in in what many you know might consider kind of the, the height of the time of, of Greek philosophy. And so philosophy is still alive and well today. And uh, so some of it has changed. Much of it hasn't. Um, some of the names are different, you know, in terms of uh, even even dealing with uh, objections from contemporary science and things these days. But again, we have to separate in our mind this idea between somebody being smart and being a good thinker. If we assume that all smart people are good thinkers, then we won't challenge their ideas. And that would be... um, that would be incredibly mistaken. I mean, think about the people that we've talked about so far um, today. I mean, we've mentioned the religious uh, Pharisees. We have mentioned the Greek philosophers. Nobody disputes. Paul would not dispute. Jesus would not dispute that he was going up against some of the smartest people that you could find. I mean, these people were brilliant thinkers and brilliant um, learners and highly, highly respected in their communities. And yet, they did not think carefully. They did not think carefully. That was the difference. And you have to be able to make that distinction and to see that difference in order to um, uh, to do this. And again, when you start looking at this, at things this way, it will be less intimidating. Um, you will have, you know, you, you, sometimes you get a feeling of kind of like a, of starstruckness or something like that. When somebody who you really admire, um, especially somebody who you think is a really smart person, speaks up and speaks out and says something that you think do, just doesn't sound right. Like, how could somebody with that level of intelligence say something so crazy? And this is why. It's because to be smart is not to think clearly, and you have to learn how to make that distinction. So we 
do live in a world today of armchair philosophers. Um, everybody is, you know, thinks that they're a great thinker, but most people just aren't. So we have to be ready to respond with some careful thinking of our own and help others to think carefully as well. Now, what about using uh, this in, in practice? So kind of some practical application for using a reductio ad absurdum. So we're going to return to Kokel here because he really does give us a helpful grid, I think, for using this in real conversation. So the first thing he says is to distill the idea down to its most basic principle or assertion. Do the work to make sure you understand the claim correctly. Okay. Um, the second thing he suggests is giving the idea a mental test drive. All right. So first we understand the claim correctly. Let's make sure we get it. And then we take the idea for a test drive. We ask ourselves, if I follow this principle consistently, what are the consequences? What implications might it have for other issues? Does it take me somewhere that seems wrong, counterintuitive, or absurd? The answers to these questions may not be immediately obvious, but often become clear later after you have given the issue some thought. So, okay, you're going to distill the idea down to its most basic principle or assertion. Then you're going to think about it, right? You're going to take it for a mental test drive, see where the uh, conclusions land you. Is there something that would be undesirable about this argument if you took um, it to its logical conclusion and applied it to other areas, okay? And then finally, point the problem out to your interlocutor, right? Allow her the time to think carefully and reflect on the problem for herself. And uh, to the extent possible, just help her understand that she will have to modify her thinking in some way in order to remain consistent. That That's really... Um, what you're doing here is you're you're giving a call to consistency. You're saying no, no, you need to be consistent because if you follow this idea to its logical con or to its logical conclusion, you're going to end up with this contradiction, and we don't want that. That would be um, undesirable thinking. And again, some people are just so untrained on this that they might not really realize it. You know, they might they might have never thought about the fact that contradictions in thinking are undesirable, right? I mean, they they might just think that all contradictions are somewhat paradoxical or whatever. So you might even have to do the work to explain that. So you have to help the, the person understand that, no, in order to remain consistent, you're going to have to modify your thinking in some way, whether it be with respect to the details or even at the worldview level. So by employing this argument, the reductio ad absurdum, you know, you join a long list of philosophers, careful thinkers, uh, and even apparently uh, concerned parents who realize that ideas have consequences. And, and that's what you really want to take home here is that ideas have consequences and thinking through them is of the utmost importance. Um, Absurd ones should be exposed for their irrationality and should be discarded and uh, rejected. So, uh, you know, whether the issue is justifying uh, juvenile disobedience or defending a woman's quote unquote right to choose, uh, bad ideas have to be uh, exposed. And this is a tactic, the reductio ad absurdum is a tactic that's very simple to employ. And yet, it's the death knell to bad thinking. I mean, it's really the death knell. To, to bad thinking. So I would invite you to learn more about it, begin to use it in conversation with others. And if there's something about it that is confusing or you're not quite understanding it, I would be um, 
more than happy to, to lend my thoughts for uh, a few moments and help you understand it. Feel free to shoot me an email or something at steve at steveshram.com and we could talk through it and uh, I'd be happy to get back to you uh, there. So that's it for this week's podcast. Again, I want to kind of implore you to share the podcast with others. The way that um, podcasts spread these days is through uh, word of mouth primarily. And so I would love for more people to jump on board with the Bible Nerd Podcast. We can learn how to think clearly uh, about these issues and um, just simply learn um, how to do the things uh, and respond uh, in the way that Jesus did and in the way that Paul did. And other uh, biblical thinkers also used these sorts of arguments. Once you see it, um, it's really hard to unsee it uh, looking through the scriptures. So I think that... um, it would be really great for you to, to you know, to, to really give some careful thought to that. Now, on uh, next week's um, episode, we are going to talk about God in the garden in the cool of the day, a man or a myth. And so we're, what we're really doing here is returning to some of William Lane Craig's thoughts on the... Um, on early Genesis and the genre of early Genesis and some considerations that he has that makes him think that the genre of early Genesis is mytho history. Well, I'm, I'm going to take some issue with that, as you might imagine, and we're going to go through some of his examples and I'm going to uh, try to demonstrate to you why I don't think that the examples that he gives to, to, to try to, to show that uh, Genesis is mytho history, Genesis 1 through 11 anyway, um, are persuasive. In fact, um, I think that they can be very easily uh, dealt with. So that's uh, what we're going to take a look at next week. Again, like um, uh, if you like the podcast, you know, share it with others. That's the thing. Leave us a review somewhere on your uh, podcatcher of choice or your service of choice, whether it be iTunes or Spotify, CastBox, wherever you are. Leave us a review. Tell somebody else about the show so we can get uh, a, a nation of Bible nerds on board here listening to the podcast each week and interacting. All right. God bless you. Thank you. I love you. I thank you for your support. We'll see you next week.